This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MDT Podcast. I am Ian Wilkinson. I'm a consultant geriatrician in Surrey. And I'm Joe Preston, also a geriatrician. So we're going to be talking about mental capacity and really focusing on some of the practical tips yeah. for you to take back to your workplace. Yeah, to know how you can be involved in mental capacity assessments because it's not just something that um, doctors are responsible for or participate in. The mental capacity is something that you're, even if you don't know that you're doing it, you're probably doing it yeah. quite often in your job. And we're going to talk through some of that later on so that after this episode, hopefully in your day-to-day work... You can kind of see where you're doing that and then start to build on that. Yeah, and I think it's another example of a topic that's really multi-professional, multidisciplinary and permeates through actually a whole load of the things that we've already talked about and things that are going to come in the future. The learning objectives for this episode are contained at the top of the show notes. The MDT Podcast. So we have some feedback from last week's episode. Well, I think, first of all, we have to say that we have won an award. Yay! Our first award. Yay! So this was for the London and Southeast Technology Enhanced Learning Conference mm-hmm. Best Innovation Poster Slash Presentation of this year. Very exciting. Yeah, super exciting. And so we first award is in the bag. And then we now have some feedback on the episode. Uh, the first feedback is from June Ben Roach who works down in Brighton. And Jude has contacted us through the website, which is something that you can do, uh, with a suggestion for future okay. episodes relevant for medical students. Uh, the first one is on discharge planning. Okay, which, which I think we're doing. We'll see that's coming up. Yeah. And the second one is on human factors. Ah, oh, we were talking about yeah. this with the faculty. So we'll have to see what comes yeah. about that. Yeah, but I like that idea. Second bit of feedback is Joe Middleton. That's him of the Paro Seal fame. Ugh. If you don't know what that is, go back a few episodes, have a listen. And I have to give congratulations to Joe, really, again, because he's used the podcast in a really nice blended learning session for a journal club. Yeah, which is really nice. Kind of a modern day journal club. So he uh, got everyone to listen to the podcast and then use the references to kind of have a discussion about it, um, which is great. Yeah. And Liz Langdon had a guest at the MD Teaser. She used the hashtag MD Teaser. She did, she did. She guessed a urine bottle. Which is incorrect. Which is incorrect. But we like that she tried. Yeah, please keep sending us the guesses. Yes. And the final bit of feedback is, well, more of a comment, really, from a couple of people that the feedback is a bit Scotland-centric of late. Scotland are the ones getting involved. Exactly. So, you know. so if you're not from Scotland, please double your efforts. Bye. Not really. The MDT Podcast. So this week we're going to talk about the Mental Capacity Act Mm -hmm. and we're going to really try and lay this out in the open and give you some tips and pointers to take back to your own MDT. As ever, we've been working with an MDT to develop our episodes and the contributors to this particular episode were... Tracy CK, who is uh, an occupational therapist in our faculty, and Lucy Frost, who's a dementia lead at Sussex Community Trust, she's a nurse consultant... And in guest faculty, we have Kimberly Cock, who is a geriatrics registrar, and she is also on the BGS Trainees Committee. What we're not going to talk through this week, other than really in passing, I think, is probably the deprivation of liberty safeguard process. No, we're not going It's called DOLS. It's really complex. It's complex and... No one really understands it. Know that it exists. Yeah. We will 
go Signpost through you to it. when you might need to consider it and then you should seek support within your hospital as to how your local processes run for dolls. Yeah. That's all we're going to say on it. <laughs> and as with each of these episodes, it means a slightly different thing to each member of the MDT. Mm-hmm. So we're going to kick off now with asking our MDT what capacity means to them. I am a junior doctor currently on a geriatric rotation. Capacity to me when we were training to become doctors was something that was very clear um, and was more like you're trying to fill out a form with every patient. In reality, particularly with the geriatric population, you're trying to assess capacity almost in every interaction that you have with them. And sometimes that can take an entire day and it certainly will take um, other team members such as nurses, particularly OTs and physiotherapists, to come to a joint decision. Well, I'm a charge nurse on an acute medical ward. Capacity of people who don't have capacity for their care. Their care in East is all about being an informed choice and being able to make decisions based on information that they can give, etc. And if you lack capacity or are unable to make uh, decisions like that, then someone else needs to be able to make that decision for you. Um, and that's where it, you know where a lot of work comes in as to who can be the right person to make that decision. Meetings with doctors and meetings with family and meetings, and it's it's, it's getting everyone on board so the right decision can be made for that patient at that particular time in their um, stay and in their treatment plan. So I'm an occupational therapist on a trauma and orthopedics ward. If someone is assessed to have capacity regarding their discharge, so they want to go home there have been times when we've had to facilitate quite sort of unsafe discharges but that person's been assessed to have the capacity to make that decision so we've had to um, put in lots of different measures um, to try and make it as safe as possible but um, it's quite challenging and um, can be very unsafe for the patient and carers that might be involved. So I think mental capacity is something that is really commonly used but often really in terms of discharge planning, isn't it? Yeah, we, we're often true. asked to assess capacity regarding discharge and it often seems to be deferred to the doctors on the ward. Yeah, I don't really know why that is. I don't know whether sometimes it's an unfamiliarity with it and the fact that it's a care act that people feel like it's a yeah. legal principle and so feel that they want to defer that responsibility or whether it's just they're unfamiliar with it. And so hopefully by the end of this we will build on that a little bit. Yeah. And the other thing is... It's decision specific, but I guess we'll get to that um, a little bit later on, won't we? So we're going to talk about the Mental Capacity Act 2005. Um, and the Act itself is quite easy to read. And we recommend that anyone who's interested go and has a read of that and has a look through the first few pages yeah. at least. Um, they're quite helpful. The first few pages in particular, I think, are really nicely written and actually lay out the the core sort of feeling behind the Act and what it's trying to achieve quite Quite nicely, I think. Yeah. So we're going to talk through the five principles that underlie the whole act now. Ian likes them exactly as they're written. He's going to read that. We're going to interpret them. Yeah. And act them. (laughs) Yes. So the five principles, it says at the beginning of the act, the following principles apply for the purposes of this act. And the first one is that a person must be assumed to have capacity unless it is established that he or she lacks capacity. And this is so important, isn't it? It's like the underlying of everything you assume capacity you don't assume that someone doesn't have capacity you shouldn't have to prove it for everyone for every decision that they make they have it unless there's a suspicion that they don't second principle is a person is not to be treated as unable to make a decision unless all practical steps to help him to do so have been taken without success so that means you go to see them and if they can't hear you 
you have to go and find their hearing aid. You have to take them to a quiet room. You have to take those steps. And you have to keep redoing that until that is no longer the problem that is impeding their ability to yeah, take the part onus in this is on us exactly. to communicate with them. Yeah. The third principle is a person is not to be treated as unable to make a decision merely because they make an unwise decision. So we're all allowed to do stupid things. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the fourth one then is an act done or decision made under this act, being the Medical Capacity Act, for or on behalf of a person who lacks capacity must be done or made in their best interests. So what this one is saying is that if that person lacks capacity, you have to act in their best interest. Yeah, and that best interest is, in the in the case law afterwards, that best interest is wider than just medical. You know, that's medical and social yeah. and societal and cultural. Mm-hmm. And finally. And finally, the fifth one is, before the act is done or the decision is made, regard must be had to whether the purpose for which it is needed can be effectively achieved in a way that is less restrictive of the person's rights or freedom of action. So what this is saying is if there are two options available to you, that you should choose the least restrictive method. Yeah. Or the least restrictive option. So if going home with a package of care or going to a residential home are your two options, you should probably try to get them home with a package of care because that is least restrictive. And I think one of the, the absolute key things is there is that you're allowed to make unwise decisions. Yep, That's the one that are. really rings through to me. Yep. And that the Mental Capacity Act refers to specific decisions. It's not, you can't, you know, when people say, that, oh, they don't have capacity. That you doesn't actually mean anything. Because... That's the first half of a sentence. They don't have capacity yeah. to decide X or Y. And just because you know. they've dyed their hair pink last mm. week doesn't mean they can't make a decision about something no. else. No, no. Specific decisions. Yeah. So we thought we'd talk through a couple of decisions or a couple of examples where capacity may come up um, in a day-to-day situation on the ward. So, for example, if a nurse is doing a drug round and they offer someone paracetamol and they say they don't want to have their paracetamol this morning, it's quite a small decision, but the nurse has to make a decision then and there about actually whether they think that this person, how much they need the paracetamol, whether they are of sound mind to make that decision about whether to have the paracetamol or not. Yeah, so really it's it's common sense, but what actually they're doing is applying the first and the third principles of the Act, really, that sort of assuming the person has capacity. So if they don't um, want to take it? If they don't want to take it, that's fine. And then the, the third one is that if it's an unwise decision, you know, it doesn't affect your ability to make that decision. If they're one of those people that complains of pain all the time but just doesn't want to take paracetamol, fair yeah. play. Yeah. They're allowed to do that. The next thing is kind of going a little bit further and saying, if not, why not? Have they misheard you because they haven't got the hearing aid in or they thought you said something else? Perhaps uh, they want it in a different form, so they want a soluble form today or something like that so that you can find other ways around it. And then I guess if the patient is unwell or pyrexial, the nurse may choose to give it in another way, Mm. for example, intravenously, and will do this in the patient's best interests, mm. thus making the assumption that they don't have capacity to make that decision mm. without necessarily fully going through and doing a full Mental Capacity Act assessment. Because mm. lots of trusts have um, Mental Capacity Assessment forms now, don't they? And we tend to use those for big decisions. But obviously this is a situation where you would not sit down and do the paperwork. No. But clearly you're applying the principles of the Mental Capacity Act, whether you realise it or not, all the time. Yeah. And you can extrapolate this to other things. Um, So starting off with really simple things, you know, you can make, have the ability to decide what to eat and drink. So you you can decide if you want to have tea or coffee, but that doesn't transcend into your ability to make a much bigger decision. Mm -hmm. So for an example, 
if I said to you, Joe, you've got a million pounds to go on holiday and a bit like Brewster's millions, you know, mm -hmm. you can only have that million pounds if you budget exactly one million pounds for a two-week holiday. It's going to take you a lot longer yeah. to make that decision. I'd be paralysed by indecision. Yeah, a lot longer than do you want tea or coffee, mm -hmm. which you'll say tea every single time. <laughs> I will, yeah. <laughs> so I think documentation is really important, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. And I like to document it as a two-stage test, mm -hmm. which is how often the pro formers are done. But for me, the first part is a diagnostic test. So that is answering the question of, is there a disorder of mind or brain? So this is, do we think this person has a delirium at the moment and actually they can't make these decisions for themselves? Do we think they have an underlying cognitive impairment, such as dementia, and they might never be able to make this decision? Or do they have a mental health issue at the moment that if that was treated, that they would be able to um, participate in this decision? And so it's kind of trying to work out if you think it's there and also whether you think it's something that's going to resolve. Yeah. So do you have time? And again, this will be depend on, on the question that you're asking. But do you have time for that to be treated? Do you have time for that to settle before this decision needs to be made? Or do you need to make it while they still don't have the functioning of their mind and brain at the moment? Yeah. So the capacity test for me is four parts. The first part is do they understand the information? The second part is can they retain the information for long enough to make a decision? The length of time it takes to make a decision is different depending on what that decision mm. is. The third part of capacity test is the ability to weigh it in the balance. And this is the bit that is often very yeah. difficult to both prove to yourself and to document as well as to how you, you do this. Um, but you have to be able to show that people can think about both sides of the discussion. Quite often you'll do that by asking them to kind of say what would be the worst case scenario if they made that choice. What are the risks associated yeah. with this decision so that you can see that they're seeing both sides. Yeah. If it's a reasonably complex decision, as discharge planning decisions tend to be, which, you know, is, is probably one of the biggest ones that we all come across quite regularly. If they've got a mild delirium or they've got a dementia, they may have a difficulty in retaining that information long enough to weigh up. And that becomes really difficult because then you have to use kind of other ways. So the decision about tea or coffee takes a fraction of a second, whereas the million pound for a holiday takes much longer time to make mm. that decision. You have to be able to hold that information in your head for longer. And actually a decision about where you want to live is quite a big decision. Big decision. We shouldn't expect yeah. people to be able to make that, if they, especially if they've not thought about it before. Just on the spot then and yeah, there. exactly. And then the final part is to communicate. And the onus really is on us yep. to do this. But the ability to communicate the decision is the fourth part. So the four parts of capacity test are to understand, to retain information, to weigh it in the balance and to communicate it. So sometimes it's easier, I think, to go through a case. Yeah, um, and I'm excited about this because we haven't done a case kind of No, no, episode, this is the first time, so isn't it? That's been nice. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time telling you about Jill, who we've made up. Yeah, so us and Lucy, uh, the... Yeah, this came from Lucy Frost. This came from Lucy Frost, our faculty member. So a kind of similar scenario that we, we would see ourselves in day-to-day, -day, and we're going to apply the principles at the end as we talk through the case. So Jill is a 93-year-old lady. She's admitted to hospital following a fall, and she's broken her wrist. She's a retired postmistress, and she always liked to be really busy. She didn't like the initial stage of retirement, got very restless, and so she worked as a volunteer in a charity shop for a number of years, but stopped about three years ago and she started to find it difficult to manage the till. And about a year later, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. She's got no appointed power of attorney. She's very deaf, um, but is meticulous about always having her hearing aids yes, in. She, is. she lives alone in a two-storey terraced house and has got two sons and a cat who's called Fred. 
One son lives locally and is very supportive. The other son lives a bit further away. She has carers arranged for once every day in the morning to prompt her with taking her medications, and a cleaner comes once a week. Jill does not always feel that she needs the carers and often turns them away. She's a bit stubborn. She's a bit stubborn. She has fractured her arm, and it will be in a plaster cast for around six weeks. After coming to hospital and having the cast put on, she developed a urinary tract infection, and she's been moved to a care of the elderly ward. And she has completed her course of antibiotics. Probably because someone naughty put a catheter in and they shouldn't have done it in the first place. Quite possibly, yes. And then she got to the elderly care and we just took it out and everything got better. It was great. Um, She can't really remember much about the fall, but the paramedics at the time said that she seemed to trip up the step in her hallway. She likes to go out into town usually, regularly goes to the cafe in her local department store. She also likes to read the paper. Yeah, good. And her son is getting concerned about this as a few times now she's got on the wrong bus and on one occasion she was actually collected by the police after the carers reported her missing. So when we get to be involved with Jill, she is really quite keen to leave hospital. She feels that she's going to be absolutely fine with her cast. She's seen the occupational therapist and the physiotherapist on the ward and they've recommended, while she's got the cast, to increase the care calls to twice a day. Uh, One for making sure she's up and dressed in the morning, prompted for her medicines, and the second to help with meal preparation. But her son isn't so sure and says, I don't feel like we can trust her anymore. I think she'll need to go into a home. She says, I'm going home and that is that. She doesn't see what all the fuss is about at all. So, at this point, where do we go? Um, we need to have a think about who who has the decision-making mm. time here. How, how does it all work? Well, I mean, going back to the principles, uh, Jill does. It's her decision. If she has capacity, then she can make an unwise choice yep. to go home and not have those carers. But it's a little bit unclear, isn't mm. it? So we need to test her capacity. Mm-hmm. And so the first stage of the capacity test is a diagnostic test. Mm-hmm. Does she have a disorder of mind or brain? Yep. Well, we know that she's got dementia. And then the second part of that is, can this test of capacity wait for this to resolve? The key thing here is to say that just because she has the dementia doesn't mean that she doesn't have capacity. Because it's decision-specific and people can have reasonably advanced dementia and still be able to make decisions about certain elements of their life. So we won't assume that she doesn't have capacity because of the dementia, but it does play into your your concern about her ability to retain the information and weigh it up. But if she had something like delirium, mm-hmm. which you can hear about in episode two, then you may wait for the res- delirium to resolve before going on yeah, to your absolutely. actual capacity test. Yeah. The capacity test is of four parts. The first bit is to understand the information. The second bit is to be able to retain the information for long enough to make a decision. The third part is to be able to weigh the information up. So in Jill's case, thinking about pros and cons of going home versus pros and cons of what her son wants, which is for to not go home and probably to a care home. Mm. And then the fourth bit is the ability to communicate this information. So working through each of those those bits in, in order, we have to assume capacity. So in this circumstance, unless someone has raised particular concern about her ability to make decisions, that we would actually assume that she has capacity. Yeah. Principle um, one of the mental capacity. Principle one. But the son has raised concerns. So um, that's that's probably enough. He knows her very well to kind of yeah. prompt to say, OK, let's do that. So we next have to make sure that we have taken all practical steps to make this easy for her to participate. So making sure that she has got those hearing aids that she's very meticulous about. Principle two. Principle two. um, To always have in the back of our mind that she's allowed to make that unwise decision. If she demonstrates capacity to um, make that decision to turn away her carers and not have help, 
for those things. She's allowed to do that, yeah. even if her son doesn't want it. Yeah. Principle three, you're allowed to make unwise decisions. We're all allowed to be stupid. Next, it has to be in her best interests. So let's assume that she has capacity because that's that's the assessment that we've made. It's not really relevant what's in her best interests because she, she gets to decide that. However, if she wasn't to have capacity, then we would have to have a discussion with all of the people who could represent her best wishes and her previous thoughts. So people involved with her care, her son, people have known her on the ward if she's been in for quite a long time. And being aware that best interest decisions are not just medical, but they can be wider social or cultural decisions as well. And that's tying into principle four, which is that if you're going to do something under the auspices of the Act, the Mental Capacity Act, then it's got to be done within the patient's best interest. So Mm -hmm. therefore you have to have a meeting to decide what the patient's best interests are. If you are making a best interest decision, that you make the decision that is the least restrictive option. So in this case, it probably would be going home with a package of care. Um, but for example, putting in safeguards so you had a key safe, for example, so that carers would be able to get in. Yeah. Or some telemedicine to keep a track of her if she gets lost. Yeah, that sort of thing. And that's principle five, the less restrictive option. So we've gone through all of that. And um, after talking to her, we, uh, we come to an agreement with Jill that she does have capacity to make this decision herself. And she's going to go home with a twice daily package of care. Yeah. She didn't quite realise that her son was so concerned about her and so that kind of weighed into her decision-making yeah. that, that she would she would accept those people and she would let them in this time. And I think that's, at, at this point, in a practical aspect on the ward, you'd probably have a meeting with the son to talk through the Mental Capacity Act and talk about the fact that even though he's got concerns, maybe the team as well have concerns, but actually Jill's got the decision the ability to make this decision herself. And quite often I find it's helpful, especially if families are contesting or quite worried about this, to do it with them present. Yeah. Because then they see the steps that you go through, they see see the decision and and can actually help you Yeah. as well. Okay, so the next day we've made this decision. She's going to go home with an increased package of care. Um, and the next day she gets quite annoyed with the, the ward staff. She's asking to leave the ward and she's trying to push her way out of mm-hmm. the door whenever she sees someone comes in. Um, we've assessed her and we think actually she's developed another infection, she's got a fever and she's much, much more confused than the day before. So chest Um, infection this time? Yeah, chest infection this time. And actually now we think we redo the capacity and we don't think she's got capacity to make this decision. Mm -hmm. What do we do now, Jo? Well, now you kind of go back to the beginning again and, and, and kind of have to go through things again. So if she's actively trying to leave, then this is the situation where you might need to consider a doll's. Um, which is a deprivation of liberty safeguard. To keep someone safe, you are depriving them of their liberties. Um, again, we're going to leave you to talk to your to your local trust about how you implement that. But if she's developed a delirium, so there's been a new change in the functioning of her brain and mind, then you have to restart the capacity assessment again. And we're going to say in this example that she has now lost capacity because of the delirium, but it is something that is treatable. Um, and it's not a decision that she needs to go home that afternoon, so we are able to delay that decision until she is better so that we can rehab that conversation. Yeah. And the likelihood is that because if you came to it once when she was of sound mind, that you'll end up with the same decision down the line again. Yeah, so there's a couple of variations on that, I think. There's what if the son had power of attorney? Mm. So um, there are different types of power of attorney. Yeah, so you've got power of attorney. What They're all enduring power of attorneys now, and you've got power of attorney for health or finance. Mm-hmm. And so if the son has power of attorney for health and welfare, they can make decisions at the point that the patient loses capacity about the health and welfare mm-hmm. or 
they can make decisions at the point that the patient loses capacity about their finances. But they're two very separate things. And so if someone comes to you and says, I have power of attorney, you have to say, which one? And you have to see it. You have to bring it in. They can't just say it. And you will not have very much experience with looking at them. If you're in any doubt, you can get your legal team in your hospital or in your um, community trust. And they should be formally registered. They have to be formally registered. And that power of attorney means that that person... At the point that that person loses capacity, they can make decisions for them as if they were that person. Yeah. That's the power that you give them. So you have to respect it the same as you would respect Jill yeah. in that point. And the second variation, I guess, is if she doesn't have any sons and doesn't actually have anyone to act as a, as a relative or a next of kin. Mm. So let's say that she had more advanced dementia and she wasn't able to make this decision for herself at all and we didn't think it was due to a delirium and we don't think it's going to recover and she has no one else to help her make this decision especially in cases where there is any doubt about what the right thing to do is you can appoint an IMCA yeah which is an independent mental capacity advocate yeah does what it says on the tin it's an independent advocate for somebody who doesn't have mental capacity and so they are especially trained group of people who will go about and help you make best interest decisions for patients who don't have any relatives to um, sort of fight their corner for the decision, really. Mm. yeah. And it's to make sure that as, you know, these are things that we're very used to doing all the time and something might seem quite straightforward to us, it's to just kind of have that independent view so that you're respecting that person's autonomy and that you're sure that you're doing yeah. that. And and it's for it can be for any big decision where, where there isn't universal agreement. One of the challenges in applying the Mental Capacity Act is that it can seem quite subjective in a way. Mm. Often there's, there may be differing views between professionals, between the MDT team, between relatives. People often have different views, don't they? Yeah. There was a report that came out uh, last year called A Long Road to Travel, which looks at the impact of the Mental Capacity Act and its fitness for use in clinical practice. And one of the things that they found, actually, was that often blanket decisions are still being made. So if someone has dementia, yeah. just assume? It's okay. just assumption, yeah. And interestingly, it's the patients who have better communication who are more likely to be assessed as having capacity. Mm-hmm. So if you're able to talk about it, people are much more so likely to, time, to really. sort of say that you've got capacity, mm-hmm. even... Even though you may not actually be thinking things through, you may not be retaining the information, you may not be weighing it in the balance, but the fact that you're communicating about it means you're much more likely to be assessed as having capacity. This is somewhere where speech and language therapists can really come in, isn't it? And we kind of touched on this in episode four with the communicating with people with cognitive impairment. Um, and I think there's a real role for speech and language therapists, in particular in the MDT, for, for helping support communication around difficult decisions in, 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 in that area where it's helping them in that final stage to communicate, yeah. finding non-verbal ways to do that. It's really important. Um, and we, we will link that in the show notes and we'll link to the, to the act. There aren't really that many references for this for this episode, um, but, but we will put them in the show notes, yeah. which will be available on the website. It all comes back to the act and the code of practice for the act. The MDT Podcast. So now it's the time for our MDT teaser, the catchily titled MDT item guessing game. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And we're going to kick off with mine to you, Joe. Yep. Go. So, first clue is 
aim low. Shoes. No. Good guess, but not right. Second clue. Every patient should have one. <laughs> that could be so many things. It should be, yeah. Okay, next. No, okay, third clue is team cooperation may lead to an improvement. In the item? In the item, yeah. I'm not lying, it's not an easy one. <laughs> uh, fool's plan? No, I like your idea, though. Yeah, I like the idea. All right. Next one is, it's an assessment of risk. Beds? Bed rails? Bed rails, no. No? No. Although that would fit, aim low, yeah. Uh, And then the last clue, then, is red plates may help. Ah, like a must score. A must score, yeah. And red plates might help because in patients with cognitive impairment, there's some evidence that if you change the plate colour, you enhance the colour contrast on the food and patients may 20% more. Yeah. Yeah. So you got that on the last clue. Well Lovely. Done. Yeah. Cool. All right. Now it's your turn. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. This item costs nine pounds. Um. Is it a chest train? It is not a chest train. It's not a very MDT item. No, I know, but I couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> okay. The name of a type of this is similar to Nutella. Like it. A hazelnutty chocolate spread? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay. Varying amounts of this can be used to change the outcome. Is it a patella hammer? No. <laughs> How can you use varying amounts of a patella hammer? You could hit it different. I don't know. <laughs> okay. You know the aim of these clues is they're meant to hang together as a thing. <laughs> the aim is for you to guess it. Yes, come on. <laughs> Okay, fourth clue. Using three measurements of this will produce something like custard. Is it thickener? It is thickener. What's it got to do with Nutella? The name is Nutilis. Oh, the name of one one maker of them. Yeah. 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 Okay. (laughs) Cool. Well, that means I win. You do win. And now we have a clue for you. Yes. For the next clue in the MD teaser... Put them all together and see if you can guess what this item is. To win an exclusive MDT mug. And so the clue is, it has no overall impact on the substrate for which it is intended. Cryptic, eh? Yes. But more specific than last time. More specific than last time, yes. So if you think you know what it is... Give us a guess. Um, Let us know on Twitter using the hashtag MDTeaser or on Facebook or email us directly if you want to keep your clue secret. But Mm. don't share it around. Through the website, yes. And the MDT will reconvene in two weeks. Dr Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a hearing aid podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.